Hey, hey, and welcome back to the Shit You Don't Learn in School podcast. This is Calvin Rosser. And this is Steph Smith. And today we're going to be talking about what the world might look like in 300 years. Wow, 300 years. That's a long time. It's both a long time and actually not that long of a time if you think about it. The reason we wanted to do this podcast is because we've been watching a show that took place around 300 years ago and it has that same juxtaposition of this feels really long ago, but at the same time, 300 years, like that's not that many generations. The show we are referring to is Catherine the Great. It's on Hulu. It's a wonderful show. It's hilarious. But also, as I just mentioned, has made us think about how much society has progressed. Because as you watch the show, you just notice all of these things that seem so outlandish watching them now, but probably weren't outlandish at all at the time. Yeah, I think what's interesting about the show is that some things have changed a lot. Other things haven't. So humans are still humans. We're motivated by fear, greed, love, etc. All that seems to stay the same throughout history. But the show is interesting because it's this inflection point in human history where we move from the more medieval era, where there was very strict hierarchies and a big focus on God and religion. And Catherine the Great is thought of as someone who brought the Enlightenment, which was happening all around Europe at that time to Russia. And that was this focus on science, on reason, on progress. And really, our society today is born out of the ideals of the Enlightenment. And many of the ways in which we think about the world are a product of that era and the way in which human ingenuity has produced many things in line with those ideas. Yeah, I think that's really key because there are many aspects of our society today that we just take for granted. We take for granted that we have scientists that peer review papers or that we have vaccines that are widely accessible to people around the world. Just to give people an understanding of some of the things that we picked up on from the show, the show was based in the 1700s, or at least that's when Catherine the Great was alive. A couple things to note. So women generally could not read. Literacy rates were low, but even of the people who could read, they were a majority, a strong majority men. As I mentioned, vaccines were not a thing. Vaccines didn't really become prevalent until 1796. Other things like detecting pregnancies, which again, we take for granted. Today, we have pretty widely available pregnancy tests. Back then, they used wheat. Women would literally pee on a piece of wheat, and that apparently would tell them if they were pregnant. And the fascinating part of that is the accuracy rate of that wheat protocol was actually 70 to 85%. So it persisted for quite some time. And then one final thing, although there are many other points we could call out from the show, is just the death rates from things like smallpox, but also women giving birth. Today, not all women survive giving birth, but it is very likely that you'll survive, at least within the developed world. Back then, it was not certain at all. In fact, I think like single percentage points of women died from just the act of giving birth. Yeah. One of the most striking scenes from the show is when the king, Peter, shortly before Catherine has their first baby, has to go out and dig graves for Catherine and the baby because there's a non-trivial chance that both of them die. And so there's this tradition, I don't know if that was truth or just something represented in the show, but that highlights this non-trivial chance that both the woman and the baby would die. And actually a crazy stat is child mortality is probably one of the best metrics that you can look at over time for the overall health of a society, because it means we have resources to take care of those who are most vulnerable. And in 1800, 43% of children would die before their fifth birthday. That number today is under 5% in the developed world. In wealthier countries today, it's under 1%. But that number has just been declining rapidly over time. And that's crazy. Think about that. If you had a kid, there's a 43% chance that they might die before the age of five. That is totally insane when you just put it into that perspective. When people today, at least in the developed world, have a kid, they most likely are expecting them to survive until their adulthood. But before it was like almost a 50% chance this kid would die. That's such a change in perspective. And that also changes the dynamics. Like back then, I think people were having many more kids just to offset that calculus. Exactly. And if you put that in the context of what society looked like back then, so when you talk about extreme poverty at that time in 1800, 85% of the world's population lived in extreme poverty. That number is now 9% today. And that's defined as living on $2 or less per day. 
And at that time as well, the life expectancy overall was 31 years and it's now 72. And of course, this varies across countries, but there's this interesting notion that flows around that the world is getting worse. But if you look at metrics like this, it's getting substantially better across the board. And in less than 300 years, we've gotten to a point where it's likely that your child will survive and you will as well. But before that wasn't at all guaranteed. And and that's just crazy to me. And what's even crazier is if you actually look at the graph, especially of life expectancy, there's a graph from Our World and Data, which basically shows that life expectancy was pretty much flat for many centuries. The graph starts at 1770, and it looks like life expectancy across the world was around 30, maybe up to 35 until 1900. And then it was really in the last century where things completely changed and you just see this totally upward trajectory. It was really crazy to just consider how much can change in such little time. This was really not our lifetime, but our parents' lifetime. Yeah, actually, the biggest change for many of the metrics came after World War II. And even if you look at some of the things we're talking about in the 1960s, like in 1960, 18% of children died within their first five years of life, and 50% of the world's population was in poverty. And as I said, less than 5% of children die today, and less than 10% of the world lives in extreme poverty. And so there's just been this dramatic acceleration as war resources have gone to countries like China and India and other places that were maybe lagging behind Western Europe and the US and some other places. And that all happened within the last 60 years. Exactly. And just to support this point further, here are a couple data points or timestamps in terms of things that you probably recognize in your daily life and again, take for granted that happened within the last 300 years. So the first example is the iPhone. Billions of people have iPhones today. These are computers in your pocket. 15 years ago, this did not exist. 30 years ago, many of the largest companies that you're familiar with also didn't exist, whether it's Facebook, Google, Tesla, Amazon. None of these companies existed 30 years ago. 40 years ago, the internet didn't exist. The way that so many of us communicate, the way that you're listening to us today, that literally did not exist. 50 years ago, beheadings were still legal in the UK. I don't know how that was true, but in 1973, that law changed. 70 years ago, that's when we determined the structure of DNA, which again, is something that we take for granted today. We can sequence viruses in a matter of hours, but 70 years ago, we didn't even know the structure of DNA. A hundred years ago, penicillin, the first true antibiotic, was invented. 120 years ago, we got refrigerators and airplanes. Like These are things that we use and just expect to be in our lives. But 120 years ago, they didn't exist at all. And then finally, around 300 years ago, 330 years ago, that's when the Salem witch trials happened. So in that phase of life, people still believed in witches. They were getting burned because people thought they were witches. And so that kind of puts you in the mindset of just how different people thought about the world back then. I think one of my first introductions to this idea of how fast the world can change and how quickly we can forget it is one of my favorite TV shows is Mad Men, which is all about advertisers in the 1950s. And it's really just the story of all these white dudes on Madison Avenue in New York who just spend their whole day drinking and smoking cigarettes and demeaning their secretaries, all of which are women, and then giving some ads to big corporations so that they can sell more products to people. I think that show is another example of something that feels more tangible than, say, Catherine the Great, but at the same time shows just how rapidly our world has changed since that time in terms of opportunities across the board for everyone. And also, you know, people are just getting drunk at work or smoking everywhere. I mean, even 20 years ago in my lifetime, people were smoking in restaurants. And I don't know when it stopped on airplanes, but I don't think it was long after or before that. And that seems almost inconceivable today. Exactly. And so if things within our lifetime have gone from totally normal to inconceivable, when we're talking about this 300-year time span, it's crazy to imagine what might be to come. Now, before we move on to predictions, I wanted to share two tools which people can play with if they also want to wrap their head around all the things that have changed. And they're from this guy, Neil Agarwal. So you can go to his site at neal, N-E-A-L, dot 
fun. And he has a bunch of cool tools there, but I want to call out two. The first one is one called Who Was Alive? It's this really fun tool where you can type in literally any date and it'll tell you different people who were alive during that era. The second one is called 10 Years Ago, and it's a tool where basically you can look at a bunch of different sites that you're familiar with today and see what the internet looked like 10 years ago. So again, they're just these like time machine tools to help you really frame around this idea of how much can change over certain periods of time. All right. With that said, what we're going to move on to do is to talk through what we think the world might look like in 300 years. 300 years is a long time. So maybe our kids, 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 kids will live during that era. Cal, why don't you kick it off with one of your predictions? As I've mentioned before, I'm not a much of a futurist. So my first prediction is that human nature won't change. We'll still be motivated by the same things. But I think many things will change. And the big one that I'm thinking about now, and I don't know what it looks like in 300 years or 50 or 100, but I think it'll be fundamentally different is just changes in medicine and how we understand physical health. And so if I had to frame this up, I think health today, as advanced as we think we are, is still extremely reactionary. So you go to the doctor or you get help when you feel pain or you start to get sick or you suffer from something, but you really don't know if something is coming for you unless you get lucky in a lot of ways. So something like cancer, often people don't find out about it until it's too late. And so what I think, practically speaking, the world will look like is that across many different domains, we'll have continuous health monitoring. So people's sleep will be tracked. We'll have tracking on what foods do to your blood sugar. We'll understand when we're potentially at risk of something fatal, like a stroke or a heart attack. We'll have early cancer detection. And I think all of this comes, actually, some of it exists today, but all of it comes with mass adoption of these tracking technologies. It also comes with better understanding of our basic and I should say complex biological functions like sleep, wakefulness, aging, how the brain works, how environmental and other stimuli impact our health, well-being, and moods. There's a lot of emerging stuff on this right now, and people are running experiments, but I still don't even think we have a good understanding of the basic things. And I think once we do, we'll be able to embed that in the ever-increasing technology. And suddenly we'll look back and it will be very odd that you didn't know that you had cancer until it was too late and you died from it. Or it will be very strange that you continue to eat foods that basically killed you at a much faster rate and didn't know that the whole time. Yeah. I'm really interested to see what things we believe today are going to be just completely disproven and will look quite silly in the future. So in the show, when we look back at Catherine the Great, one of the things that they do when she's pregnant is they put a frog on her belly. And I'm not sure exactly what they're trying to achieve with this frog, but they seem to believe that it does something. And they seem to really believe that. Now, of course, we know today that putting a frog on your belly when you're pregnant does absolutely nothing. And so I I do wonder what in 300 years we're going to look back on today in terms of the latest health information or nutrition information, or as you mentioned, as it relates to something like sleep, which we actually seem to know very little about. What are we going to look back on and be like, people thought that? Like, that's pretty crazy. And I think one of those is inevitably going to be what you mentioned about the fact that right now our medicine is mostly reactionary and in the future, it'll mostly be proactive. One of the challenges that we'll have to overcome on that journey though, is it's much more profitable for people in the medical industry to do reactionary medicine, because often there's much more that you have to do and you can profit from someone's pain and longer term suffering versus preventing something. And that's just a dynamic that plays out in many areas of life. But I do tend to think that we'll get better here because we want to live longer. We want to be healthier. And this will also mix with some of the genetic engineering type of technology that's already accelerating at this point, where we may choose to not have people born with certain defects or things that make their life much more difficult by simply modifying some genes before they come into life or potentially once they're in life and experience some symptoms. Yeah, a lot of the technology that exists today already lets people do this. It's, of course, a question of ethics in some ways, or at least that's the way it's positioned by some folks. So if you imagine that technology to some extent exists today, again, in that 300-year time span, it's kind of crazy to imagine what data we'll be tracking with our bodies, 
the amount of intervention that we'll have both before someone's born, as they're alive, and as they're maybe on their way to death. I find this space incredibly fascinating, and I've just been shocked by some of the advancements in the last couple of years. Of course, the mRNA vaccines that have happened recently. I don't know if you saw, but Moderna just put in a human trial for an HIV mRNA vaccine. That's a problem that has been attemptedly solved for decades. And now that this new technology through mRNA has been created, of course, the trials are just happening, but that has so many applications that are coming to fruition now that we've discovered this one breakthrough. Yeah, what's really interesting about technological developments is that you often have some acute pain. So for example, the pandemic, where the world really needed to respond quickly. And what was born out of that is probably the result of many decades of research into mRNA vaccines. And they finally found their moment to get through trials quickly and be distributed to the population. And now we're thinking about how to use that technology for other forms of human suffering like AIDS. And I think that's what makes the future so hard to predict is there's these moments where things come into existence and then very quickly they can spread to other areas and in ways that we didn't expect. I also think from a health perspective, it'll be interesting in 300 years to likely see that many of the things that people die from today are just not the things that people will die from in 300 years. We probably can't even dream up the things that people might be dying from at that time, but The same way that smallpox is something that we eradicated, we probably will eradicate some of the very common means of death today. But of course, new ones will arise as life completely changes. There's probably some continuity to the reasons we die because the human organs and body won't change too much. But I do wonder, what what would someone who lived until they were 250 years old, what ailments would they suffer from? Yeah, I think you're right that, of course, the human body relies on certain things and therefore there's like broad buckets to which people die. But if you just consider in the past, it was not uncommon for someone to die from scurvy. Today, it's like very few people are dying from scurvy because we know exactly what it is and how to prevent it. So I think in the future, it may be crazy to think that people were dying from cancer, which sounds like an outlandish thing to say today. But in 300 years, that might not be the case. I'll tell you one thing that I do think is outlandish today. So we're talking about all these new technologies and how great life is today. But the reality is there's still people dying of not having access to clean water and dying of preventable diseases like diarrhea in certain places that don't have access to resources. And so it's this interesting paradigm where us in the wealthier Western world feel like, yeah, I'm not going to die from lack of access to water or diarrhea. That's very treatable people on earth today are still dying from these things. So it's like the future is here, but it's not evenly distributed. And the same dynamic is going to happen for all these future developments. And hopefully we find a way to spread those to more people more quickly. I think all technology typically starts with wealthier people who can access it. And then it slowly funnels down to other parts of society, but hopefully we can make it more globally distributed as well. Absolutely. On this topic of things that start out as expensive, but then drastically reduce in price. One of the things that I think is going to be very interesting in not the next 300 years, but probably the next couple decades, maybe even this decade, is food printing. So most of the food that we digest today is grown somewhere in some very specific climate, then shipped to where people want to consume it. I think that will change. We're already seeing lots of vertical farming, and that's one way to adjust the food production chain. But I also think there's a ton of investment going into lab-grown meat and things of the like. And I saw this chart actually from The Hustle the other day, which was the price of lab-grown shrimp, which kind of sounds gross, but at the same time, I don't think you'd know the difference. In 2019, the cost for a kilogram was $7,400. In 2021, It was $700, so that's already a 10x decrease in two years. And then guess what it's expected to be next year? 50 cents. (laughs) No, so $37. But in the next couple years, so 2026 to 2028, it's expected to be $4. Now, I looked up what the cost of normal shrimp is, and it's $15 per kilo. So in the next five years, we're looking at lab-grown 
shrimp actually being cheaper than traditionally grown or harvested shrimp, which is pretty crazy because, again, in this scenario, we're not even talking about a 300-year time span. We're talking about in the next decade, we might completely change the ways that we grow or produce food and it being economical. So that may not only impact the rich, but you know, people as a whole. Yeah. I think one of the common things I hear from people who are theorizing about the future is that we're going to look back on how we factory farmed animals and be horrified by that. And I think underlying that thesis is just like a greater concern about the environment, about the morality of how we interact with it, et cetera. And in countries where there's enough wealth to think about these problems, I think a lot of the things that you're talking about are happening where maybe synthetic meat is, if we can make it as good and nutritious as regular meat would lead to the reduction in something like factory farming. And the world is just likely going to move in that direction if you're able to get something of similar quality, but it doesn't have all these other environmental and ethical concerns. Yeah, I tweeted about this idea that we're discussing right now, which is what will people think is totally crazy 500 years from now? And I included this idea that people will look back and think that the way that we farmed and bred animals was totally inhumane. And a lot of people, several people commented on that and they were like, not in 500 years, like this is going to happen in our lifetime. Some people even thought this would happen in 50 years, this change of sentiment. I don't know if I agree with that in terms of the time span, but I think it's inevitable once we find alternative means, it is a little crazy to think that we would continue having animals go through that suffering unnecessarily if we have other means where that's just not needed. I think what's interesting about this idea is that it falls into the camp of something that I think is reasonable, but it's also very popular to say. And I just, I wonder how that change is going to take place over time. Yeah. I'm always fascinated by things that are just like so deeply ingrained in the way that we operate and have been for very long periods of time. It relates to, you know, that Lindy effect idea, which is however long something's been around, the more likely it is to persist. And something like growing food or breeding animals or cooking your own food, a lot of these are like things that people think humans just need to do. And I wonder how quickly we can shift away from that. So like cooking as an example, I actually think it's not going to be crazy if in a hundred years, most people don't cook their own food. But a lot of people, if they were to hear me say that today, would be like, that's never going to happen. Like, that's just lazy people. Why would you not want to cook your own food? Similarly, I've asked the question, when are we going to stop teaching kids handwriting? And a lot of people will respond like, we should never stop teaching kids handwriting. And I don't know the right answers to these questions, but the idea that I'm getting at is there are certain things that have been kind of universal to humans for such a long period of time. And I don't know... A, how much resistance there will be to stopping those things, and then also just the time it takes to cycle through humans, right? I don't think you can untrain humans to do certain things, and so it would almost take new generations to get past that. Yeah, it's like the combination of innovation or new ways of doing things, plus the old generations have to die off because they're not going to let go of many of their ideas. Did you want to talk about I don't know too much about it, but I've listened to a brief snippet about Canna. Yeah. So this is a startup from David Friedberg, who has created other companies in the past, but his latest company, Canna, has a goal of basically printing beverages. And it's super fascinating if people haven't heard of the company. I would encourage you to listen to an episode he did with Jason Calacanis on This Week in Startups. So basically, this company started from a piece of information that David heard, and it was something along the lines of most beverages are like 99% water, and then a combination of, I feel like it was around 30 different other chemicals, all combined in different ratios. And that included everything from wine to coffee to seltzers to juices, which, as we all know, have very different taste profiles. But apparently, most of the composition is again water and then a selection of common chemicals. And so what he realized is instead of going through this very heavy supply chain where you have all of these different materials sourced in different places, whether it's the coffee bean or the sugar or the grapes for wine, instead of that happening in all these different places and then all these trucks 
harvesting those materials and then processing them and then shipping them in these bottles to stores and the people buying them from stores and bringing them home, he basically is trying to come up with a machine that does it all in someone's home. Meaning it would be like those machines that you you see at like a gas station where you can choose, do I want Coke or Fanta or do I want like a mix of them? But instead of some gross mix of Fanta and 7-Up, you can create most of the drinks that you're familiar with, which sounds crazy. But actually when he explained it and explained the science behind it and how it's possible, it made so much sense. And again, if they are able to achieve this, the efficiency that they're achieving throughout the supply chain, where they're removing all of those middle steps and just having people produce these things in their homes is incredible. And then the final thing I'll add there is you can imagine the different business models that may emerge from this democratized beverage creation, meaning creators can come up with their own recipes that they sell to people. You can have different brands that are created off the back of Canna. And basically, you're going to create this long tail of beverages because right now, the way that the beverage supply chain is structured, you can only really sell beverages en masse versus this approach would allow a lot more niche flavors to be produced because they don't need to be shipped in these mass ways. Yeah, I think what's extremely fascinating about this is it leverages 3D printing technology plus some basic science of the composition of drinks to just like fundamentally change the world and how we do these things. If I have one machine where I can print coffee, wine, Coca-Cola, that's insane. And I think what's really cool about this is this is an example of people have talked about 3D printing forever. And I think it's being used in different ways that I probably don't know about, but this would be a practical consumer use case. And then once you unlock beverages, you probably could unlock many different things. Maybe I can print everyday items in my home and not go buy them on Amazon. And I just have one machine that can do that. And if this works, I'd be pretty scared if I'm Coca-Cola or Amazon or these other companies, because quickly you're just directly in the consumer's house. And what do you do from there? Because it's going to be way cheaper, regardless of how much the machine costs versus the human capital costs and distribution to grocery stores and all the other things that go into getting a Coke into your home. Yeah, I love the idea that this would basically create an avenue for user-generated content. In this case, it would be user-generated beverages. But if you think about the way that the internet democratized people to create content online, whether it's a Twitter account or a newsletter or a podcast like we're talking on today, the ability for billions of people to participate and the innovation and ideas that have come as a result of that has been incredible. And so if you use those same mechanics for something like beverage printing, it's equally fascinating, I think. And to your point about physical items, there are actually already 3D printers, not ones that will print you a fridge, for example, but that can print everyday items. And we've talked already about the cost of technology decreasing exponentially. That has happened with 3D printers. 3D printers used to cost many thousands of dollars for even the most basic models. And now you can get a 3D printer that's actually decent for less than the price of a GoPro. I think one other prediction that I had was around just how digital things will be. So things have already become much more digital. It's not just your phone. Most people's fridges are digital. Your stove has a chip in it, your coffee machine, your vacuum. Like a lot of things that we have today are becoming much more digital, much more integrated. And I think that'll continue to be true to the point where in... 50 years, 100 years, certainly 300 years, you're going to have robots surrounding you. And a robot won't necessarily look like what we imagine a robot to be in a movie, but you're just going to be surrounded by these digital devices that are doing work for you. That was actually on my list as well Is I think automation is the story of the next few decades. As we've seen, it's pretty hard if we move away from the globalized supply chain, which is happening in response to COVID. And we, we saw the risk of being so integrated. And it's very hard to cheaply produce things without leveraging the whole world of, of people working on things. And what I think companies will do is invest heavily in automation, which means making supply chains less reliant on people and more on robots, which will lead to more robots. And to your point on, will people be cooking in 100 years? You can imagine a world in which your robot just moves to your fridge 
or some other place and just shows up at your house with a nicely fresh cooked meal that's optimized based on what spikes your blood sugar or not. And it comes with a little test that you take to make sure that things are good. Maybe this whole concept of a fridge and going to the grocery store and all of that just won't even be there because we're lazy and we want a frictionless experience in life. And so we just leverage these new beings in ways that are just fundamentally different from how we go about doing things right now, which is still pretty manual. I think basically you move from what is now more popular, aka having Amazon Fresh or Whole Foods deliver something to your door, which relies on a human going to a grocery store and having something much more automated that doesn't even have humans involved at all in the process. Yeah. I think that robot helpers, again, they may not look like robots, but whatever we want to call them, will be as ubiquitous as dogs. So in America, some crazy number of households have dogs. I think it's nearing like 100 million dogs in the United States alone. And so the prevalence of that is like, you know someone who has a dog if you don't have a dog, and you likely know many people who have dogs. I think the same thing will be true soon about robots or these robot helpers. Like, You're going to know people who have robots helping them, and soon enough, you will too have a robot helping you with your everyday tasks. I just hope we can program the robots to have certain personality features and they can just become your friends. I can see that being a trend as well in a world where people are self-isolating a lot more and maybe want to hunker down and just enjoy the conveniences of life. We get our little robot friend who soothes us in different ways and isn't constrained by the incentives and or emotions of humans. Yeah. I think a lot of people are afraid of that, this idea of robot relationships and they think it's really weird. And I have to say, I have a little bit of a stigma against it too. I mean, I think in some ways, movies train us to see robots as this thing that it's like, you know, it's just a robot and it's weird to form any sort of emotional connection with a robot. But I'll make two points on that. One of them is that this is already happening where people are forming relationships with robots. If people have heard of Replica, R-E-P-L-I-K-A, this is an application where basically people talk to an AI and it's gotten so good that people really feel like they're building relationships with this AI. There's a Facebook group where people talk about their replicas and they'll go to this Facebook group to talk to other people on the platform. And they'll say things like, my replica was really mean to me today. I don't know what to do. Or I think I have to break up with my replica. They're acting really weird. And they truly believe this. And I'm not even judging them. Even the way I framed that made it sound like what's happening is not real. It's not a human, but they feel like they have some sort of connection with this digital thing. And if people are curious to go down this avenue of considering the emotional relationships that humans may have with robots, I would encourage you to listen to a podcast on the Huberman Lab with Lex Friedman. And Lex actually believes that robots will hopefully unlock this beautiful side of humans robots may actually be able to enhance human emotion instead of viewing it as this like counterproductive thing. I think what's interesting is a lot of people struggle to relate to their emotions. They may end up going to a therapist, they may repress things, but it's actually quite hard to learn how to understand and relate to your emotions and communicate them with other people. Because if you mess up when you're experimenting with that, the other person may give you a reaction that shuts you down, or you may be ostracized in ways that are uncomfortable or increase your pain. Perhaps robots can serve as less scary ways of helping people understand their experience in the world and get those emotions out that maybe they don't do now. And perhaps that unlocks even greater connection between people or a more expression of love and beauty and art across more people. I can see that thesis. I think that was Lex's thesis or aligned with it. In addition to it being perhaps more comfortable, you can actually imagine a world where it's much more effective because instead of trying to go and find the perfect therapist for you, going through several tests and referrals and just trying to get the match right, you can imagine that we could probably and probably have already created the technology to produce many thousands, if not millions, of therapists, of digital therapists that can cater to a person, can even evolve with the person and be specifically tailored to one individual instead of one person that you're trying to haphazardly match. This actually ties together nicely with one of my other big theses about what's going to happen, which is changes in how we understand and deal with mental health challenges. And I didn't have this written down, but perhaps robots are 
one of the ways in which we can help humans have a better experience on this earth. But I think one of the things that is just striking to me, and it hits close to home because my mom died from suicide, but one in five adults, aka 20% of people in the US have experienced mental health issues in 2020. Suicide is the leading cause of death among people aged 10 to 34 in the US. And I think it's a 10th leading cause of death overall. And it's been increasing since 2000. And so what, what I think is just actually very mind boggling in a lot of ways is we're living in the most prosperous time on earth. We just talked about all these stats of things that improved over time. Many of us have more time and other freedom to design the life that we want, or at least there's more opportunities to do that regardless of where you're starting on the playing field. And yet unhappiness is increasing to the level where more and more people are actually saying life is not worth living. And I've certainly had some dark periods in my own life, and I think I can relate to that feeling of not wanting to exist. But to see so many people take that final solution to life, life became such a big burden and source of suffering that you didn't want to live it anymore, that you didn't want to feel the sunshine on your face. You didn't want to see the smile of a child. You didn't want to experience the subtle joys of putting your feet in the sand. Whatever it is that makes you happy, those little things, more and more people don't want that. And they're acting in that way. And it's happening within children as well. And my big question is just what's going wrong in a world where we have more and we say technology is improving our lives, where people are actually showing us that something is is going wrong in this equation of living life. And so I guess the prediction there is we're going to look at this and we're going to be like, this was insane that this was a trend that was going on. And our current solutions, which are very fragmented, there's self-help books, there's religion, there's therapy, there's psychedelics. There's all these things, but people are somehow unable to unlock the set of solutions that allows them to live a good life. And many people are, even those who don't commit suicide, are just struggling. They're turning to drugs, depressants. Maybe they're even turning to achievement at work. There's many socially accepted forms of expressing your discontent with the world. But I think we're going to look back on this and be like, wow, we didn't understand anything about the human brain. And we'll have much more elegant solutions for helping people navigate life or at least want to be a part of it in a positive way. One thing that just occurred to me as you were talking is that it seems like over time, humans have been incredibly good at understanding everything but humans. <laughs> like, we can solve basically any problem that faces us, but the one universal thing that kind of carries through history is, yeah, human suffering and human conflict and human psychology that we don't quite understand. And I do wonder if that's just part of being human in a way, and whether that will continue to be true in 300 years, if not 3,000 years. Or I do wonder if with some of the technologies that we have, whether we can understand things better. One of the technologies that I think a lot of people are fearful of, and rightfully so, is this like brain-computer interface that's being developed. And I think it is scary because I don't know if I want people to be able to see exactly what goes on in my brain. I don't know if I want to know the reality of how my brain works. But I do wonder if with that technology, we're going to learn a lot about the way people think. And perhaps that technology might give us some insight into certain questions that we've never been able to answer. Like what? Like the ones we just talked about, like these constant topics of like human conflict and suffering and how people think and and why humans are kind of like eternally unhappy in some ways, even though we progress and progress. And I guess we have some of those answers already in theory, but I do wonder if we'll get more clarity into those topics with something like a brain computer interface. Yeah. So I think just to talk about things that I don't believe will change, we'll always have the big questions of life. What does it all mean? What happens after death? all these questions that have plagued philosophers and everyday people forever. And just on the topic of suffering, if you go by what the Buddhists say, life is suffering. And it's more about how you relate to that. Life is not supposed to be this big box of joy that always has unlimited fun within your future. And if I had to theorize, I think that potentially is what part of what's going on right now where because technology is now embedded within our lives and we see the happiness of other people or the way in which they post about their lives on social channels, or we see the success of other people who we think maybe we're smarter than, 
because we're relative creatures, it's very difficult for us to compare our own inner dissatisfaction, which is a very normal part of life, with what seems like just a great life that other people live. And I wonder if that comparison is contributing to it. But that brings me to what you said, which I think where we'll get more sophisticated, whether it's via brain scans or just having more experience and running more experiments, is the interplay between all the things that we introduce into life, into the world. And so what we do for work, what we eat, what we do at different times, how that makes us feel, how seeing other people on social channels actually influences our mood when we combine it with all these things. I think that's what we're actually woefully bad at is understanding how some new technology may improve our life in one way, but then it detracts from our overall satisfaction. And so it's the question of, do we want to make that trade-off? Do we want to keep moving the needle on technological advancement? I don't think we can stop that train, but if that train ultimately leads to accelerated human suffering, at some point we may say, hey, 50% of people are killing themselves. Like Maybe we should scale this back and figure out some other way to live. Well, one interesting aspect of what you just said relates to the fact that the progression that we see in technology is often much faster, if not exponentially faster than our evolutionary biology. And so the things that are changing around us, like we talked about those things earlier in the episode, the internet, iPhones, all of these companies that have completely reshaped our world all happened within our lifetime. But evolution typically takes a lot longer than that, right? Like many generations. And we didn't have those generations to adapt. I don't think we're going to stop technology in order to wait to catch up, but I I do think it'll be interesting to see how we adapt to that. I've mentioned this many times before, but I do think that there is a disjointed nature between the people who participate in technology and those who actually have a decent understanding of how it works. And I think that's very important because I think one of the reasons that we see a lot of people go astray on some of these social platforms and such is because they have no idea how these algorithms work. They have no idea how their phones are built or what information is being transferred back and forth. And I do think that technical literacy is going to have to improve for some of those consequences to also improve. But do you think that technical literacy actually solves potentially some of the damaging effects of technology on the mind? Because I would consider both you and I technically savvy I'm still hopelessly addicted to Twitter and getting news stories that confirm my biases and all these things that basically hijack my brain. And it's because the technology, it leverages evolution and I can't change the way that my mind works. And therefore, I can't resist many of these things or it's extremely difficult. And I think that's actually one of the fundamental challenges is as hard as we try to meditate or to remove ourselves from the distraction, in the absence of the things that we need, whether it's love or social connection or high-quality food or time and space to reflect, it's actually quite difficult to get that when we're constantly being hijacked. And I don't feel any more immune to that, even if I understand what's happening. I think you're right that we're probably not much more capable of stopping these things from happening. But I do think that the awareness of them and the understanding of what is happening does give you a little more power, or at least a little more awareness of what's happening to you and to others around you. It breaks my heart to see people who are thrown into these deep internet rabbit holes in negative ways and truly have no idea what's happening to them. And as you said, I may not be able to resist that any more than them, but at least I would know to some extent when it's happening. In fact, I do know sometimes I'm on a social website and I know I'm being dragged down this rabbit hole. I know I can feel myself. Like I can see all of the markers. I can see the growth hacks built into the app and I'm still doing those things to your point, but at least I'm aware of it. So yeah, I don't know if it makes it much better, but I do think that it is important for more people to at least be aware of what's happening. I almost want to liken this to cognitive biases. So one of the say, kings of cognitive biases and decision-making is Daniel Kahneman, who's written many books on this and many papers. And he didn't say this exactly, but this guy knows everything about the mental traps that we fall in when we make decisions and live our lives. And he's like, yeah, awareness is good, but there's not really anything you can do about it. Like You're still going to be prone to the sunk cost fallacy and the confirmation bias. And I think you can build these safeguards. But when it comes to 
if you put enough people within a system that hijacks their brain or manipulates their psychology, some percentage of those, even with awareness, are going to go down these dark rabbit holes that lead to bad outcomes for themselves or for others. The same is probably true on the other side where people are very inspired by what they find, and that leads to human ingenuity. And, and here, I think we have the paradox of the internet where many people have improved the quality of their lives and the lives of others in dramatic ways. And on the flip side of that, there has been some bad outcomes as well that have resulted. Agreed. Let's wrap up by going quick fire across a couple other topics that we think might be interesting over the next 300 years. But I will say that throughout this conversation and even prior to it, I kind of realized that 300 years is just this time span that is so impossible to predict. Like it's so hard to predict 10 years from now. And most of the technologies or the things that at least I've introduced in this podcast, I'm like, this stuff might happen in five years or maybe 50 max. But the whole 300 year marker is just so insane the way it was probably insane for people who were peeing on wheat to determine pregnancy to imagine that people are like flying and FaceTiming on their phones and getting food delivered to them from across the world. Yeah. I think this probably should be renamed what's going to happen in 50 years. I think our minds are thinking maybe too incrementally, or at least I think directionally, this is one of the themes I would want anyone who's listening to take away is there are certain things, whether it's like AR, VR, crypto, genomics, 3D printing, robotics, changes in health, AI, these are trends that I think will shape the future, but we just don't know the ways in which that will actually manifest. Similar to people who were excited about the internet in the 60s and 70s as a concept, had no idea what would happen when you put the internet in the hands of billions of people. That I think is where you get disruptive innovation that we can't imagine when you mix technological advancement with human ingenuity, and those two come together and create the unimaginable. Exactly. So let's go quick fire through some of these ideas over the next, let's say, 50 years. I think there are going to be a ton of jobs that people, even 50 years from now, will be like, I can't believe people did that. That'll include things like driving buses or trucks or trains, but it'll also be all those people in an airport who are like welcoming you or counting the number of people in a line. It'll include cashiers. And I'm probably missing a ton of jobs, but I think that a lot of them will be replaced by robots, which again, won't necessarily look like a human robot, but just a machine that facilitates those actions. All right. What do you got? I think in the very near future, people will not die from lack of food or other treatable conditions like diarrhea. As I mentioned, still lots of people dying from these things. I don't think the problem is that we lack food on earth. It's just that it's not distributed to people in ways that allow everyone to thrive. And I think the same is true for basic medical advancements that haven't reached certain areas. I think we will solve that problem. I think that our current construct of countries will be dismantled. And it doesn't mean there won't be physical borders, but I do think that the ties that people have to one singular nation will dissipate. And I think tax systems and visas will have to be completely rethought in order to facilitate the really digital world that we live in. That relates to my next idea, which is around, I think we'll think it's crazy how many different currencies and processes we had for money. I don't know what the ultimate solution will be, but if the idea of nations does break down or if people do continue to work more globally and earn across borders and such, we'll have to dramatically change in many ways the way that we address taxation, currencies, and how we even understand the national landscape and the way that money flows through the world. I guess crypto people would say Bitcoin solves this. I don't know if that's the ultimate answer, but I do know that I think we'll look back and say, wow, that was a very complicated system. And thank God we have what we have today. You know, it reminds me of that language. Do you remember there was a language that people tried to invent that they were like, everyone should just speak the same language and, and they tried to make that true across the world? Yeah, I don't remember the name of it, though. So it was called Esperanto. And it was, again, this language that people were like, it's crazy that people all speak different languages. And there's a part of me that in the scheme of like finances and currencies is, yeah, like, why don't we all use the same currency? And as you said, many people listening are probably like, yes, Bitcoin solves this. But I do wonder whether we move towards a system where, yes, everyone does speak the same language and everyone does use the same currency or whether technology solves some of this in the sense that instead of people all speaking the same language, we have 
basically real-time translators between languages. And so you don't need to switch to something like Esperanto. Instead, when someone's talking to you, it's just like automatically being translated in real time. And we talked about that like brain-computer interface. Imagine that. If we had that brain-computer interface that could truly translate something real time into your brain, then you wouldn't need this ubiquitous layer. I think the one thing you can bet on is that over time, we'll find ways to reduce friction across the various domains in which we have to interact. And so whether it's payments or currencies, et cetera, I think there will be just less friction in the future than there is today. Agreed. I think another angle that's been catching my eye recently is the idea of wars and how they're fought. The largest world wars that most people are familiar with were fought physically. And I wonder what the digital equivalent of those is in the future. There have been forms of digital warfare already, things like government agencies or power lines being hacked. But I do wonder how that evolves over time. Like, What does warfare look like in 100 years? I can't imagine that it's going to be fought in the same way that we did even 50 years ago. I guess I don't know about that one because you could imagine a world in which our power grids were shut down. Wouldn't we go try to fight the culprits who did that to the extent that we could get over there. It's just, I feel like there's always going to be a physical element, but the initial strikes may be this digital equivalent, which is already happening and a concern for many governments. Yeah, I think you're right that the world will always rely on certain physical goods and services, but then even those physical goods and services are becoming more online. So when it comes to let's say a power line, that grid has a bunch of information that they need, which is housed digitally. Their ability to interact with other grids, tangential to them, is also digital. Their ability to get payment through the customers that need that power is also digital. And so a lot of the infrastructure, other than the power itself, is becoming more and more digital. And so there's ways to basically engage in warfare without touching a single thing in the physical ways that we did before while still wreaking like a lot of havoc on a society or a group of people. Yeah, but then governments probably have drone armies ready to come get you or something. I don't know. I think it's going to be a mix of physical and digital, but potentially less reliant on humans. And the part that scares me the most is how reliant we are on digital right now. I think it makes our world far more fragile than we think it is. And Imagine if you just couldn't log into any of your accounts tomorrow. Exactly. That's what's kind of crazy is people make fun of this digital future that people like us predict. But there are so many aspects of the world that we now rely on in terms of digital. Like if I don't have Wi-Fi tomorrow, I can't do my job. And then if I don't do that for a couple of days, like I'm fired. That's my financial stability gone. And if I don't have access to finances and I can't pay for food. And so like it goes down the line. And yes, at the end of the day, what we truly need are the physical needs like water, f- food, shelter. But it is really interesting to just question if your digital assets are taken away from you, how resilient are you? And many people, the answer is like not very resilient. I guess it's time to become preppers. And then the worst case scenario is that if things went down like that, people wouldn't be able to listen to this pod. That's a huge issue. That's the biggest issue. All right. I got two more. All right. Let's hear it. The first one is around schooling. I think a lot of schooling is built around the idea of making people into good citizens of a specific country. We teach things like memorization, basic reading, math, all these things you need to know to function in the world. I think the skills that you'll need to thrive in the future will be quite different than they are today. And there's probably some threads that will continue. You need to be able to connect with others, read, do basic things like that. But I think we're going to have to reinvent. Schooling seems to be optimized for producing nine to five factory workers as versus creative knowledge workers, which is maybe the current paradigm. And then there's a future paradigm where there's more automation and things that you and I can't yet predict, where the needs will change even more. And so I just have to think that school is not going to look at all like it does today. I agree. And clearly that's true because we have a podcast called The Shit You Don't Learn in School. I'm really excited, truthfully, about how well humans can solve problems without formal schooling. Did you hear about the story from, I think it was like many years ago, but where they dropped these tablets in Ethiopia and these kids like basically learned to use software without any formal training? 
Yeah, I've heard about that. Yeah, it's crazy. These kids were dropped these tablets. They didn't know how to read or write. And within two weeks, we're singing ABCs in their village. And within five months, they had actually hacked Android. So these tablets were programmed on Android and they had actually hacked it because basically the people who made the tablets had disabled the camera on the tablets and they had actually figured out how to hack that so they could enable the camera, which is just insane because again, there was no formal schooling that happened there. And so whenever I hear stories like that, I'm like, wow, even if our school system maybe could use an uplift, people find ways to learn. And especially with the amount of information online, I I think we're going to keep advancing. I agree. You can just look at YouTube's revenue over time to validate this thesis that education is changing. Like many people are turning to say YouTube to go educate themselves about things. But I think there's a fundamental need to teach people how to evaluate claims, how to evaluate the sources of those claims, how to understand bias within them, how to whatever. (laughs) There's a kind of a big difference between learning how to cook some corn on the cob and learning how to do a meta-analysis on a bunch of economic studies. I don't think that everyone needs to learn how to do that, but I think sometimes these more accessible forms of education, they're solving a pain point right now, which is people feel like they're not learning the skills that they need to thrive in the world, but they don't come with the filter or other things that would allow people to unlock the most valuable asset, which is ultimately how to think and how to think critically in ways that advance the quality of your own life, but also whatever it is that you want to achieve in the world. Yes. All right. I'm all out of predictions. Do you have any more? Just one more, and it's my favorite prediction of them all. I think that we're going to be absolutely stunned about how little we know about the oceans. This was an alarming stat I came across. More than 80% of the ocean is unmapped, unobserved, and unexplored. And the ocean is over 71% of Earth. So practically speaking, that means that we know very little to nothing about over 50% of the Earth. And there's a lot of like practical reasons for this. The ocean is large, it's deep, there's tons of pressure, it's hard to get there. And because we know so little, it's actually hard to get funding to go learn about the ocean because you don't know if you're going to really learn anything that's useful. So governments don't go and invest in it because the ROI on that is less than something that's more visible or something that we understand better. It seems that we understand more about the moon than we do the ocean. And that to me is wild. And I think given how vast and complicated and interesting the world is, I think if we do find ways to explore the oceans, we're going to unlock a whole series of things that will help us understand life and engage with it in different ways. I have no idea what that means, practically speaking, for our lives, but I do know that, wow, we really don't know anything, especially in that domain, and that's kind of cool. It's kind of exciting. I like the ocean a lot. It's also big and scary and very interesting. It's definitely big and scary and interesting, and it is pretty crazy that this planet is as big as it is and that it feels like we know so much, but oceans we know so little about. And my guess is that a lot of the problems that we're talking about today, climate change, access to resources, and so on, ultimately might have some very elegant solutions found within the ocean that we don't understand. And if we can unlock those, perhaps there's ways of thinking about these hard problems that many people are focused on that will help humans prosper over the long term. I agree. All right. We went through a ton of predictions. If you have any predictions about what the world might look like in 30 years, 300 years, let us know. You can find me at StephSmithIO on Twitter. And you can find me at Calvin underscore Russell on Twitter. And just one note on these predictions, I would encourage you to think about them just for the fun of it, but also in the frame of optimism. Because I really think if you look back at all the things that have happened in our lifetime and beyond, it's really exciting to see how much progress has been driven and then to reframe that as, wow, we still have a lot of progress to drive. And you can be a part of that. As people say, the best way to predict the future is to create it. And so I'd really encourage people to think about it from that lens. One other way that you can think about it is to ask the question, 
What is something that's considered socially acceptable now or super common, or again, just something that we take for granted that just simply will not be true in a hundred years. And I'm sure you will come to some pretty interesting conclusions there. And if you liked this episode, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. We got this amazing review in from Ronnie last week, which I just had to share because she said she is a retired 70 plus female non-techie from Canada. So represent, but she said she's loving the podcast and it's making her feel youthful again, which I just loved. So thank you, Ronnie, for leaving a review. And if you feel the same as Ronnie, if you're 17 or 70 and this pod is making you feel youthful thinking about the future, please make sure to subscribe or tell a friend about it. That's great. Gives me a new way to describe the pod. We infuse youth into the souls of listeners. (laughs) That might spook people out though. So I think we'll end it there. All right. Thanks for listening. Until next time.